Hello and welcome to the Digital Lighthouse. I'm Zoe Cunningham. On the Digital Lighthouse, we get inspiration from tech leaders to help us shine a light through turbulent times. We believe that if you have a lighthouse, you can harness the power of the storm. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Tom Riley, who is a delivery principal right here at Software. Tom, can I ask you to introduce yourself and tell us maybe a bit about your role and your kind of area of responsibility, I guess, at Software? Yes, that's fine. So as you say, my official job title is delivery principal. What that means is that I look after a range of our projects, making sure that we have the right teams on those projects and that we understand what our customers want and that our customers are getting the best possible service they can from us. And obviously, as part of that, making sure the software are hitting their commercial goals for the project. So basically responsible for not delivering the project, but making sure that we have everything in place to deliver it successfully. My particular area of focus is in the public sector. So I've been focused on government projects for the last sort of five years of that order. Okay, super. So I've got all kinds of questions arising from this. So firstly, I was just going to ask, does that mean you're kind of on the hook for if there are challenges with the project? So are you just assisting and it's someone else on the line if there's a problem or are you actually accountable for it? So yeah, I I think the job of the delivery principal is to be accountable for the project. So both from being a point of escalation for all the customer if they have any issues or even just want to tell us that we've done a great job. And also from senior management at Software on the hook for making sure that it succeeds from a commercial point of view and is achieving what Software wants from the project as well. Yeah. And you've been at Software for a very long time, haven't you? Yes, I have. I didn't necessarily want to look this up, but I think it's coming up to about 17 years now, which is a long time now I think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. And also, it made me think that you kind of mentioned focusing on government work for the last five years, but obviously you've got a vast range of experience from before that as well. Are you able to sum up the differences or the particular challenges and kind of flavour of working on projects for the government compared to working on private sector clients? From my point of view, it's a bit of a different way of working. So there's a lot more of a focus on making sure that the users are consulted in what we're doing. So making sure that typically we are building public facing services, for example, registered vote, things along those lines. And we need to make sure that they're as easy to use for people as they can be. So really making sure that we get feedback from wide variety of users and building that into the things that we are making. And I think that's a really interesting part of it accessibility and also just user research being at the heart of everything we do on these government projects. Yeah, because I guess that the public is almost like the broadest category of users you can ever have. So even if you were building a travel system, then it would still only be people who are looking to travel, which narrows it down a certain amount. Whereas the kind of services that I guess you're working on are applicable for everyone in the country. And so it's really important to make sure it doesn't work for just one group of people. Yeah, that's exactly right. So as I see it, there's two different sides to that. So there's um, making sure that we have spoken to users from all of the different categories to understand what they're trying to get out of it and what their specific challenges might be when using that service. And then there's making it technically accessible so that people with accessibility needs can use it in a useful way. And a lot of that is building off existing patterns that have been delivered by GDS. So we're not reinventing the wheel every time there, but 
every service is different in some way and making sure that those different bits are as easy to use as they can be. Mm. I like how you've summed it up because I think if you're in the kind of role that you're in, right, you're managing lots of different competing priorities at the same time. However, I think that the more you can sum up what the focus is, the easier it is to bring a team along with you. So I really like that you've summed up the focus as making the software easy to use. Obviously, in reality, that encompasses a large number of different aspects. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So it encompasses sort of technical build. So there are technical standards for accessibility, et cetera. It encompasses user research, as I touched on earlier, and it encompasses service design. So that's how you build the service, what questions you're asking, what screens you're presenting to users and how to make them as easy as possible for people to to navigate, basically matching their mental model, essentially, of how these things work. Then there's also content design. And I think that's actually a really interesting one. Years ago, I would think, oh, no, the content's fine. Anyone can just write reasonable content. You know, I can write sentences, therefore I could write content for a website. But actually, there's a real skill in making content that is understandable, but still gets all the point across. And I think often with these government services, you're trying to get across some fairly nuanced sort of legal positions based on legislation, etc. And trying to explain them in a simple way that can be understood by everyone is actually surprisingly difficult. Yes, yes. Another perhaps difference in working on, say, a single product or service for a particular company versus building for the government is, as you already mentioned, you're integrating with what is already a really large suite of products that for their end user Ideally, you want them to see it as one system. You know, no one likes having to go and use five different systems to get to something central from the government. So how does that affect your work? The fact that you've got to or almost seamlessly, I guess, integrate with what's already there. So a lot of this is about making it feel familiar to the user on the outside, even if it's actually different on the inside. So it's not necessarily about what technology you use. It's about making sure that the front end looks familiar. And the GDS, the Government Digital Service, have put a lot of time and effort into building components, etc., that aimed for reuse across a lot of different services. And when I say components, I mean, you know, a standard text box or a checkbox or a way of displaying error messages. That means that you can just use their patterns and it will instantly be familiar to anyone who has used any part of gov.uk. And I think that's a really important part in making sure everyone has a consistent experience. So you might build it in the back end. I'm not going to list all of the technologies, but we've built things in C Sharp. We've built things in Node. And regardless of what we've used to build them, the front end has a very familiar feel, regardless of the underlying technology. Right, exactly, which is then about kind of separating out what's the best technology to build what you're building. The user doesn't need to know that, right? Exactly. And and also the GDS don't want to mandate that every service has to be built using the same technology because that's not going to help anyone. And it would mean extra costs, I suspect, in some cases. Right. Yeah. And, and less flexibility. Indeed. Okay. So let's talk a bit more about how you do what you do. So obviously in your role as a delivery principal, you're accountable across many different projects so you're working with perhaps lots of different technologies with lots of different people 
how do you kind of context switch between the different things that you need to do? And do you maybe have a different version of yourself even for <laughs> this is this project, Tom, this is this project, Tom? I think in my case, I do do a lot of context switching. I think the key thing that I've learned is that it's not possible to know the exact detail of every single project if you're going to have to jump across lots of different ones. So as much as I would like to know exactly how things work, it's just not feasible to do so. So it's about knowing what I need to know, if that makes sense. So understanding what I need to worry about to make sure that a project can be delivered successfully. And that might be the happiness of the team. That might be how we're progressing against the dates and milestones. That might be the levels of technical quality, et cetera. Obviously, there's some common themes across a lot of projects and exactly where you need to get to on all of them. It's slightly different from project to project. In terms of bringing a different version of myself, I try not to personally. I try to act in the same way across all of my projects. I think, obviously, you have different challenges. You may have different levels of customer satisfaction, for example, but I try and be sort of open and friendly throughout and aim to give a good impression of software that way. Yeah, fantastic. That kind of feeds into what I was just about to ask, which is that essentially so much of your role, I guess, could be summed up as communication in one form or another, whether it's written communication, verbal communication, communication with people working on teams within software, communication working for clients. Is that something that you have had to kind of focus on and learn or is it something that actually comes quite naturally if you're say thinking about the objectives I think that's a really interesting question I think that parts of it come quite naturally to me so I've always quite enjoyed writing I've always quite enjoyed written communication but I suspect I have a tendency to write in a way that is not as succinct as it could be so part of it is you're sending someone an email, they're busy, you need to get your points across in a fairly concise way. So what I try and do is write things in a way that I would naturally write them and then have another look through it and see where I could cut some of the extraneous words out, which always upsets me a little bit because I quite enjoy having nice sentences and have to make them worse, but I can deal with that. Obviously, I think another key part of communication is just deciding what communication method to use. I think it's quite easy to write emails and similar because you have a bit of time to sit back and, and think about the points you're trying to get across and do it that way. But often the most effective way is actually just in the old days, pick up the phone these days, start a Teams meeting or similar because you can see how they're reacting to things in real time that way. And you can find out what impact your message is having at the time you're delivering it rather than reading an email in isolation they go away and think about it and come back to you like that you can actually find out a lot more and have more effective overall communication that way yeah and it's an opportunity isn't it to kind of build some rapport and relationship in a way that it's easier with your team because you're in an office together and you see each other and that kind of distance you can get can really hamper a project if you're not on the same page in terms of knowing what you're delivering and working towards the same ends that's exactly right. And I think we noticed that in particular during lockdown. I think we started a project during lockdown and we never actually met the people we were working with in person. And it did make it harder. It meant that I think we felt that we made slightly slower progress as a result of not being able to uh, work too closely with the team. I think there were days where we thought, but if we were all just sat in an office together, we could have talked through all of this and got to a solution. But I think it's another one where, again, over time, people have learned how to deal with this. And yeah, I think we're now fully comfortable with working remotely where we can. And I suppose the other thing then is 
because you've kind of got this context switching of like, hold on, what am I doing? What's my focus? What am I trying to achieve? And then maintaining all these relationships with all these different people. But then you've also got almost a simpler challenge, but still, I think a big challenge for everyone in a senior role in any organization is how do you actually map out your time and make sure that you're spending your time where it's most effective? Um, Have you got like tools or processes that you use for that? So obviously I use my calendar to keep track of meetings, et cetera, which do take up a significant amount of time. What I aim to do is actually, personally, I use a fairly basic process in terms of mapping out a week on a bit of pen and paper and just kind of see these are where I need to focus on these days. If I have some spare time, this is what I'm going to look at. And then on a day-to-day basis, making a list of these are the things I want to do by the end of today and ticking them off as I go. I suppose I started working in this era where suddenly everything was becoming digital and it was really exciting. And there are such advantages of having your calendar online and having these documents online, you can share and edit remotely and you can both edit the document. And then I feel over the last maybe five years or so, I've seen so much return to these kind of analog, I guess, type processes, essentially using pen and paper for things. So putting your card walls on the wall, you know, rather than online. And I guess that's the same kind of thing of using pen and paper is it just, it almost makes it different, doesn't it? From we're drowning, aren't we? Everyone's drowning in electronic communication and emails and Slack messages. And so actually it makes it unique and the source of truth for what you're doing. Yeah. And I think the act of being able to step away for a minute and work out this is what I'm going to do in this day is actually really valuable. It gives you a little bit of time away from emails and instant messages to just sit down and think, what are my goals for today? What do I want to achieve and how am I going to get there? Mm, mm. Okay, so that's really interesting kind of looking at where you are, what you do and what your responsibilities are. Something I always really like to ask people is, What did you have to do to get to where you are? So if there are people who are listening to this conversation now and they're thinking, oh, that job sounds amazing. You know, maybe they're currently working in a development role or a project management role and they're thinking, I would love to have this kind of executive level looking across loads of projects. What would you say are the key skills that you had to learn or how did you have to develop? Because your background is as a developer, right? So what were the steps from there and how did you grow your skill set? Yeah, so as you say, I started as a developer, moved into doing a little bit of tech leading. But for me, I then moved into project management or delivery management, as we'd now describe it, on a different range of projects, which I found quite interesting. And I quite enjoyed the interactions with the customers. And I quite enjoyed trying to work out what they wanted and lead the team towards delivering what they wanted, roughly speaking. So I ended up doing that on a sort of bigger and bigger scale. So trying out different techniques on different projects, learning different ways of doing things. And I think a lot of being able to provide support and governance to the teams that I do is based on having tried out different things and knowing what I work, what works and what doesn't in certain situations. So I don't have a uh, one size fits all approach here. It's very much a, um, okay, so this project sounds a bit like this other project that I did about six years ago what worked well then how could we apply that to here so to a certain degree there's getting experience of trying different techniques etc in delivery management and being able to then support other delivery managers in making suggestions as to what they could use to improve their projects 
But I also think for technical projects, there is some advantage to having come from a technical background because you know how developers work, you know the nature of the work, and you know that sometimes things will take longer than you said, and sometimes they'll take less time than you said. I think having an understanding of why that is is also quite valuable. And and I guess then understanding what can be done about it and when something can be done about it, not or what or like you say, learning what the different options are for how to deal with something unexpected. Yes, indeed. Uh, I love your answer because for me, it's so similar to the agile development methodology, right? That actually I feel really we learn by doing a little bit and seeing what happens and then keeping doing what works and not doing what doesn't work and stopping and reviewing every so often, which is basically the agile development methodology. (laughs) So I think that's really cool at like a, a meta level. What do you do to help other people on your teams? develop themselves in the same way is there anything you consciously do as kind of like the leader of the team to help them get that same experience um so we touched on communication earlier i think that's a really important part of anyone who's acting as a sort of delivery management role so i try and help people with different ways of communicating things and different techniques that they could use and in particular like going back to what i said earlier asking the question could we just ring them about this as I say, people have a tendency to not want to do that, I think. Yeah. And then there are some things which work better over email and just having ideas. Again, it's people have helped me structure emails in the past. People have helped me on different ways of getting written communication. And having gone through that process, being able to share that learning with other people it is really valuable too. There's then supporting them, as I mentioned, in different techniques, et cetera, which is about understanding enough about the project to know what the challenges are and be able to make constructive suggestions there's also another side of it which is how can you help people think about what they haven't thought about which is about asking questions it's about asking the right questions so that people will think about things that they hadn't considered or risks they hadn't worried about at that point so an obvious example might be but have we thought about how we're actually going to release this thing to live And obviously, in most cases, people will have thought about that, but it might be that at the start of a project, we haven't quite thought about that, but it might impact our overall approach to it. So just trying to ask enough questions to get people to think about things they might not have done, I think is a key part of it. And so then going forward, they can learn how to ask themselves those questions. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And that's why we give everyone small plastic ducks to ask the questions to. Um, exactly, which there is an article about on our insights page, if that's not a concept you're familiar with. So one of the factors that's really important for your job is understanding the general technology landscape and what's going on. And there's kind of a lot of different information that you need to be up to date with and aware of. What do you do kind of outside of just learning from what you're doing on your project kind of thing to keep up to date with technological developments yeah so i think there's a lot of really interesting blog posts and etc to read about these things so i mentioned gds earlier they put out a series of blog posts which cover a range of different topics and how they're approaching things that's sort of different departments publishing blogs on the gds platform but also the central gds team what they're working on and what their priorities are the next few months and I think that can be a really interesting way of finding out how within government the technological landscape is changing so to give a concrete example of that they've got a lot of work on the one login program at the moment so having a single login to all government services that would need one and I think it's really interesting just to find out about that and what changes that might mean to other services and what 
impact that might have in the future on things that we are developing. But I think in general, it, what I aim to do is, you know, listen to podcasts, hopefully ones like this, and look out for interesting blogs and share them amongst our team. We do a good job of our team also share things they have read and found interesting, and I'll try and do the same. And it just means that everyone's expanding them knowledge as best they can Mm, fantastic all right well let's finish with like the current hot topic which is ai and how do you feel about using ai within the public sector and kind of government projects is it a fantastic tool that's going to help us do everything quicker and cheaper and or is it actually quite dangerous particularly when you're looking at all this kind of sensitive data and information and how critical these services are for the general public? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think there's two sides to this. I think the first side is on the sort of generative AI side. People might be looking at government services and are there ways I could make those more efficient or easier for people to use by using generative AI? And I think there's a certain reticence, and rightly so, on using tools like that because once you are using something like that you're no longer necessarily in control of the advice that you're giving to people i think people come to a government website to get advice that they know is correct and having the risk of that being slightly wrong for whatever reason is actually a major part so i think correctly and we need to be quite careful about thinking about replacing existing services which we know are giving the correct advice with a shortcut to doing that because the the downside of getting it wrong is very high. I think the second half of this is then, are there ways we could improve how we deliver these services using sort of AI tools, so AI code generation and similar tools? Again, I think it's an interesting one for the reasons you described. A lot of the services that you work on are handling people's personal information or they're storing sensitive data, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore need to have very high standards of security and the code quality on that side. So for me, it's not a, we would never do this, but it's a, if we do do this, we need to make sure we have suitable processes in place to make sure that all the code reviewed, that we're entirely comfortable that any security flaws have been looked at and that kind of thing. I, I think it's an interesting one. There are definitely efficiencies that could be had, but I wouldn't want them to come at the expense of the security of the solutions. Yeah, absolutely. And I quite like what you're describing there about essentially having a human accountable for any piece of code, you know, that however it was generated, there is a person who has said, in the case of, I guess, projects you're working on, I, Tom Riley, am happy that this is code doing what it says it does and it's going to make the world better and not worse. Yes. No, I think you've summed it up nicely there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's been fascinating just to get an insight into kind of the day-to-day of how these large, complex projects work. We have got podcasts on quite a few of the topics we discussed today, so more podcasts on exactly how the government designed their services, also on user design and service design. So please do check out our other podcasts on Software Tech Talks, which is available on SoundCloud, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. Thank you very much, Tom. Thank you. Thank you.